Welcome to the Not Just Any Cancer podcast with me, Catherine Bouvier. Good morning and today I am coming to you from London and I'm here um, ready to go in and meet some of the team members at King's College Hospital, uh, which is a European Neuroendocrine Centre of Excellence. Just as a little bit of a warning, um, the hospital is really busy and um, I've just come outside to record this, but inside the actual multidisciplinary team meeting, I think it's going to be really busy. So some of the recordings are going to be a bit noisy, but I really do hope that that doesn't detract from the content um, and that uh, you find it sort of an interesting listen. So uh, off I go. So right now I'm going to have a chat with Dr. Deb Sarker, who is a consultant medical oncologist here at King's College and obviously a very important member of the Neuroendocrine MDT here. Um, Hello, Dr. Sarker, and thank you so much indeed for agreeing to chat with me today. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to take part in this podcast. Delighted to participate. Oh, it's fantastic. You're all giving up so much time and and I'm really grateful. Um, So I just kind of want to give people an idea of who you are, I guess. So I I suppose one of my questions is, how did you get involved with neuroendocrine as a consultant medical oncologist? I'm sure you could have gone in many directions. Yeah, yeah. So how did you end up sort of so known in this field? Yeah, so, well, I started my um, oncology training about many years ago, about two decades ago now. Um, Yes, and as um, (laughs) one of my very first jobs... Um, I was lucky enough to work at the Royal Free ah. and um, I had um, at that time uh, a lot of experience in terms of um, the neuroendocrine tumour unit at the Royal Free um, and had um, a lot of inspiring people that I met at the time. Mm. Um, so some of the people I met were, for example, uh, Professor Martin Kaplan, Tim Mayer, yourself, Kathy. <laughs> Um, and, <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I found the field absolutely fascinating. I thought that it was a very neglected area, clearly, mm. in terms of oncology. Um, and I suppose, you know, about a decade or so later, when I was thinking about what I would like to do as a career, as a consultant, um, it seemed like a very natural choice. Okay. In terms of wanting to give more options for patients and, yeah, building on what I'd seen at the free. And so Understanding that, the disease a bit more. And I yeah. guess your role now is to inspire others to uh, get into this I hope field. so. Yeah, I really hope I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose there's that slight fear, isn't it, of all you guys are such experts now and, like, who's going to come up next? And I guess we're going to have well, to we, hope there's a whole we we have to inspire the next generation and i hope we're doing that um i think there's a lot of exciting and interesting things happening in the field of neuroendocrine cancer oncology um so yeah i think we are getting lots of uh younger um oncologists and other physicians who are really interested in in neuroendocrine tumor disease and biology and treatment and and certainly yeah every reason to be optimistic for the future oh that's really nice to hear i think um I mean, you are an oncologist. Do you just do 
neuroendocrine or do you have a whole sort of caseload of other disease areas that you have to cover or just trying yeah. to understand your job really yeah yeah so I have a number of different um aspects to my job um so in terms of um the uh, alongside uh, patients with neuroendocrine tumors I treat patients with pancreatic and liver cancers okay uh, which is quite a common um, way in which many oncologists who treat patients with NETS will also treat those tumour types. Um, I also have um, a particular interest in terms of development of new cancer drugs. So I uh, co-run a um, what's called a, 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 an early phase clinical trials unit, which is actually okay. based over at Guy's Hospital. So we test new drugs for patients with a range of different cancers, including neuroendocrine cancers. I also have a particular interest in um, genomics. So um, I actually am the cancer lead for um, genomics at one of the seven genomic laboratory hubs, which have been set up um, across the UK to try and deliver genomic medicine to patients. So um, I have a number of different aspects to my job, which means I'm... Which makes me very busy, but um, I think that all of those things link in quite well together. Yeah, no, yeah. no, absolutely, I can see that. And I, I, I know about your involvement, certainly in the genomics um, field. And, yeah. and I'm just going to ask you a little bit about that la- uh, later course, on. But, yeah. um, I think it's something that's very interesting to our community, but not always that easy to understand. Sure. There can be a yeah. few complexities around that. And yeah, it is, it is a complex it. and very evolving <laughs> yeah. Continuously evolving area, yeah. So think simple in your head for, for yeah. me um, when I ask you that. But I mean, so you sit on the, the, the neuroendocrine MGT as yeah. another one of your roles. Um, yeah. What what would you say your role is as part of that MGT? I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I suppose, well, I suppose it's going to be offering sort of treatment solutions that, that you would be involved with if you feel it's appropriate. Yeah. But how does that work? So, um, well... I feel very much to be it's privileged to be part of a multi as a very focused multidisciplinary team and what we obviously try and do is offer the absolute state of the art best holistic care for our patients with neuroendocrine cancers um and within that obviously my specific role is primarily to advise around what might be the appropriate drug therapy for mm-hmm. patients with neuroendocrine cancers, depending on where they are in terms of their um, individual patient pathway. Um, but because neuroendocrine, um, because neuroendocrine cancer patients often have multiple therapies, yeah. you know, so obviously a lot of patients will have surgery, a lot of patients will have treatments like nuclear medicine with lutetium, um, as well as drug therapies. One of the key things that we have to try and understand is what sequence we should employ those therapies yeah it's, and, it's a big area isn't it's, it? a, it's a very it, I don't think. yeah so so I, th- I think that as i said whilst my specific role is very much to advise around okay somebody needs drug therapy for their neuroendocrine cancer what what should we give because you know we have a number of different treatment options available it's very much part of understanding where the patient is in that pathway mm. and trying to understand well actually for a given patient at a given time there might be a whole range of different treatment options that are available and then trying to understand and sequence what treatments should be given for a patient in the best and most appropriate way. So, yeah, I, I think 
I, I, I see myself very much as being part of a, a of a hopefully you see as well, Kathy, a very <laughs> a very uh, a, you know a functioning multidisciplinary team that is really striving at all times to give the best for our patients. No, absolutely. And and I do see that. And it's so important, I guess, you know, to have this multidisciplinary approach. And I know it's been running here since 1998 and MDT, so a fairly long time. Yeah, absolutely. um, You know, it's difficult for patients, isn't it? Because they're not part of that process. And it's quite weird to think you're being talked about, you know, behind closed doors in a way, which is why I think this this session that, that we're doing today is so important so that people can kind of get a feel of yeah. who's talking about them but yes. behind their back in a way yes. and, uh, uh, and, and it is quite a, an, in, an interesting sort of a, approach to care isn't it and I guess yeah. you have to then go back to that patient and say that this yeah. is what we've kind of come up with what what's really going to work for you absolutely based I, on a number of things I guess you know their lifestyle yeah. work family commitments that kind of stuff as well exactly. as quality of life I so I, I think a lot of the time we do understand having already spoken to patients patients what their own um uh, let's say preferences might be and what kind of things that they are particularly looking for in terms of their treatments and if there are a number of options we might already have some idea about what they feel to be the best options for them um so I, i think it's absolutely important that we have that patient voice within the multidisciplinary meetings um and, and certainly, whilst they're not physically there, we hope that obviously those um, choices and beliefs and um, understanding of what the patient wants and thinks is is very much central and integral to our decision making. I think that it almost is something that is probably more prevalent in the neuroendocrine world. I was speaking to Subraj last night. Yeah, we were talking about. Um, you know, how you build relationships with a lot of the patients in the neuroendocrine community. And, yeah. and you probably get more of a feel for that for that person than you can do in some other yeah. oncology settings, maybe or I think that's a very I think that's a very reasonable and fair thing to say actually. Um, often we look after patients for many years and we get to know patients extremely well and mm. we get to know, as I said, what their thoughts are, what their beliefs are what is important for them and that inevitably will feed into I hope better decision making at a multidisciplinary meeting yeah Um, I think it only can really can't it yeah but I mean apart from that I guess there are some basic influences that you're going to have based on uh, that will decide kind of the treatment options that you might think about and and I I guess they're not all biological are they there's going to be other things that might influence you know, whether you would say chemotherapy or one of the targeted sure. agents or... Yeah. So it's a, it's a complex web of uh, factors that come into a decision-making process around what is what we would regard as the optimal therapy. And often, as you say, those are very much the kind of clinical factors, right? So this is, for example, what grade of neuroendocrine cancer a patient has. Um, what is the extent of the disease, for yeah. example, on a scan? Um, but it's also about what is the, over, uh, you know, for example, what is the, how fit is the patient? Yeah. Right. Um, what can are they the, tolerate us? Can, could they tolerate it? What are the other medical problems? Um, and as I said, often, you know, we do have an understanding of what the patient themselves would like and what their own thoughts and ideas about 
how they would like to be treated and and that as i said should form very much part of our decision making yeah no no absolutely and then again that's you know good to hear i mean we still have challenges don't we in the neuroendocrine world i don't think don't think we can deny that no, sit here no, and say we've, we've no. sussed it all out we haven't i mean do you think sort of sequencing you've met, mentioned that earlier you know all mm. of the treatments and sequencing would you see that as still one of our challenges or or do you have any others that that particularly stand out for you so i think yeah the first thing to say is compared to say two uh, to two decades ago when we were at the raw free you know we have made an incredible yes. amount of progress Absolutely. right uh, and, right. and um, and very much i feel that you know we're standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of you know all those you know pioneers of um, neuroendocrine care such as martin kaplan and tim mayer and so on so i think we've made incredible progress but obviously you know we all understand and know that we have to do more so I think obviously the big changes in the two decades that have occurred, of, in say for example in other cancers, are that we now obviously understand much better what the um, what the kind of molecular changes in a particular patient's cancer uh, are. So for example, you know we know what the specific gene abnormalities are likely to be in many different types of cancers, including in most types of neuroendocrine cancers. Perhaps where we are behind in neuroendocrine cancers compared to other cancers, for example, in patients with lung cancer, is that um, for lung cancer, say, for example, we know what the extent of, you know, the gene mutations and so on are likely to be. And in a lot of those patients, we have specific drugs to match against those particular gene abnormalities. What we understand about neuroendocrine tumours, and that's the whole spectrum of neuroendocrine tumours, so that might be if you have a small bowel neuroendocrine tumour, a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumour, or a lung neuroendocrine tumour, is that we, we've kind of caught up now. We do understand what a lot of those genetic abnormalities are, are, are likely to be. Unfortunately, most of those genetic abnormalities that we see when we do gene sequencing of patients with neuroendocrine tumours is that the vast majority of those gene abnormalities are not specific gene abnormalities that we have specific drugs against. So that's the big discrepancy that we have in in neuroendocrine tumours versus some other cancers. Not all, but some other cancers. So obviously we have... That's not to say that, you know, gene sequencing is you know has no role whatsoever okay it 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 does but it's likely in all reality probably certainly in the short term to be only applicable for a likely to be only applicable for a very small percentage of patients with neuroendocrine can- cancers okay. but as we understand more about as i said you know those gene abnormalities and as we get better in terms of trying to identify what those are and as we get better drugs going forward Obviously, looking further forward in terms of medium and long term, obviously what we hope to be able to do is for every patient with neuroendocrine tumour ultimately to be able to, for example, do gene sequencing on their tumours, be able to identify what are the specific gene mutations are going wrong in their cancers and ideally have specific drugs against those. To target those. Exactly. So, as I said, we are behind some other cancers as things currently stand, but... Ultimately, that's the 
direction of travel. So, that, um, so we're still going in the direction of travel of other cancers. Correct. And that's often a question that is yes. asked. You know, yeah. are, are we leveling up with other cancers? Are we yeah. in with that that you know that big push? Yeah. And, and so we are. We are. Just, we are definitely. But we have we huge are. variants in our disease. Exactly. Obviously, we have a yeah. whole body as opposed yeah. to one organ. Yes. Which yeah. Causes a bit more. And, and I think that's led to some of the reasons, perhaps, why we are a little bit further yeah. behind. Um, you know, so how you know when you see, you know, um, gene sequencing data, often it's you know neuroendocrine tumors are just lumped together as one entity, yeah. whereas obviously we know that neuroendocrine tumors are a, are a huge spectrum of different cancers with different clinical characteristics and and ultimately different genomic characteristics. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I can totally appreciate that. Um, I guess my question, not yeah. just for me, but for, for for the audience here, is what is gene sequencing? So yeah. when you talk about gene sequencing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have an idea of, of what happens, but um, I wondered if you could just kind of explain yeah. what we're doing, in the, even in the cancer world, per se, yeah. and, and how that gene sequ- sequencing works. And Yeah, yeah, sure. So... The- in essence, what gene sequencing is there to try and do is to understand um, what genes, which are otherwise otherwise are, have normal functions, might be might go wrong. And for example, we talk about gene mutations, where the yeah. gene changes its characteristics and then either and then potentially becomes overactive or underactive, and and because of that, that then leads to either the development of the cancer or the cancer getting worse okay okay so what we what we're trying to do is to understand what those specific gene mutations are and the commonest way that that's done is that we take a piece of the tumor tissue which will either have been done at the time of surgery or from a biopsy yeah. um, and then that's run on these very sophisticated what we call sequencing machines and those specific genetic abnormalities are then identified. Okay. Now that there's, now there's there are actually different types of gene sequencing. Of course there is. <laughs> um, uh, and I've talked about and one of the ways that we're trying to get better in terms of doing gene sequences is instead of needing a piece of tumor tissue, we can do it on blood and and use of what's called circulating DNA. Uh, but again, you know, some gene sequencing tests might just look for a specific gene abnormality. At the other end of the spectrum, there's what's called whole gene sequencing, where we sequence the entirety of the of the of the patient's genome. Um, so at the moment, we're very much in terms of what we can do is is sequence a relatively small number of genes. But what we're moving towards is is and as I said, certainly in the medium term, what we're looking to do is to do more of that whole genome sequencing capability because that gives you the entirety of the patient's genome you're almost finding triggers in a way i suppose those sort of mutations are, are triggers I and mean, we hear that sort of viruses can be a trigger to yeah gene mutations yeah. And, and things and absolutely so and many environmental factors and stuff completely. as well yeah. yeah absolutely so there there are lots of triggers many of which we don't understand and don't know for patients with neuroendocrine tumors as to why these triggers occur and what factors are contributing to development of those specific gene changes and abnormalities so there's still a whole world out there that we need to understand better 
Um, but as I said, in terms of trying to understand what the what is going to happen in the years to come, that absolutely is it will the happen. it will happen. And as I said, it's happening to a relatively limited degree currently, but increasingly we will be use, using this more and more. Yeah, well, it's the future, and I think it's yeah. you know it's great to understand that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and I. I can't not, you know, ask you about immunotherapy for, okay. for neuroendocrine yeah. just because it's a buzzword in, in cancer and has yeah. been for a few years now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we hear mixed messages from, from mm-hmm. different people. Um, mm-hmm. I would just like some clarity as to where yeah. we sit um, sure. for the use of immunotherapy for our, for our patients as a treatment choice. Yeah. So I think the mixed messages are there <laughs> uh, because because it is a little bit mixed in terms of um, you know our understanding of the role of immunotherapy. So in essence, what immunotherapy is is basically use of drugs that specifically target abnormalities within the, within the immune system to try and reprogram the body's immune system to better recognise and fight the cancer. Cancer is very clever and it often hides away from the immune system, yeah. and instead of the immune system recognising that whatever cancer cells are there and are kind of foreign and shouldn't be there and unleashing the effects of the immune system on the cancer, cancer can kind of hide away. So the general principle behind immunotherapy is that we give drugs to try and reprogram the immune system, as I said, to try and fight the cancer. So as you said, Cathy, there are, uh, you know, in, in other cancers, we've been using these drugs now for probably the best part of a decade now. So, the uh, you know, in, in other types of cancer, so for example, melanoma which is a type of skin cancer kidney cancer lung cancer lots of other different types of cancers we know that the role of these immunotherapy drugs uh, can be pretty significant and help to treat a lot of patients in some patients potentially cure patients even with advanced disease so obviously what has happened is that we've tried to understand what is the role of immunotherapy for patients with neuroendocrine tumors So as we sit here in February 2022, I suppose what we understand is, and this is based on a number of clinical trials that have already been done, for patients um, with um, uh, low-grade, let's call it well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumours, giving the common immunotherapy drugs that we give for the other types of cancers, unfortunately, doesn't really seem to have Effect. any significant effect okay um when we talk about on the other end of the spectrum to yeah. the low grade to the high grade cancers yeah, yeah. um there does seem to be some emerging data still not completely proven that patients with the higher grade poorly differentiated neuroendocrine cancers um potentially might have some benefit and in particular around whether when you give those drugs in combination with standard chemotherapy which is the mainstay of treatment for, for those sure, for patients the type, for, the, yeah. for the carcinoma types that there does seem to be a signal around potentially enhancing the effectiveness of the chemotherapy okay now we are waiting for the results of clinical trials other ongoing clinical trials to really define that in more detail so I think we have to watch this space. As of, as I said, February 2022, 20, we don't really, 
as I said, it's not something that should be given in terms of routine practice because we don't really have the evidence okay. to support it. So we need to wait. We, we need to wait. We need to wait. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things that we are looking at in a lot more detail now is, as I said, I mentioned about giving immunotherapy alongside standard treatment, i.e. chemotherapy. So I think, you know, an active area of interest for us is to think about if we give immunotherapy alongside other standard treatments that we give for NETS, might that enhance the effectiveness? So I think going forward, we're probably going to be looking more at these kind of combinations with immunotherapy. Um, so um, I, I think that very much is the way forward. Okay. I think giving immunotherapy on its own for most patients with neuroendocrine cancer is, prob- is probably not going to be effective. We use combination therapies mm. as well as, not just with immunotherapy, though, don't we? I mean, there are trials that are ongoing in sort of probably local hospital consultant-led studies that look at other combination therapies. Um, I mean, is that quite something that's quite common in, in the cancer world, you know, for yeah. not just neuroendocrine? Exactly, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, so combination therapies are an important principle in cancer care as a whole, right? Okay. That if you combine two therapies which work in different ways, could you enhance the effectiveness? Obviously, when you kind of combine, the principles are, however, that if you combine two different therapies, what you don't want to see is that you get lots of extra side effects and so on. No, of course, that, yeah. mo- that instead of the drugs working together that might produce an extra benefit compared to giving the drugs one after the other rather than together because if you're giving them together often that means you get more side effects yeah and that can be unfair and that can exactly so that's why when we have a number of clinical trials which are running at the moment which are looking about which are you know evaluating the the role of um you know different types of combination therapy um but as i said i think i think you've always got to be a little bit cautious that you're not just adding to a you know problematic side effects by doubling up on the therapy that then might reduce a patient's quality of life yeah and that, yeah. that's not the way we want to go really, no no absolutely true? no so i think it's an important principle but the studies have to really confirm that it improves the outcomes compared to just giving one treatment after another on its own and that you don't then need as i said to more side effects and a reduction in quality of life for patients no understood understood yeah. completely so i mean we're we're it's quite a positive outlook i think you've explained that you know that there is work happening there's lots of research happening we are as you said we've made huge waves in the last 20 years yeah. or so i think since we both met yeah and um and we've just got to to wait and 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 hang in there until we can get some some further information and some further research on maybe some of the more common principles that are happening in oncology for the neuroendocrine world. Would that be a... I think that's a very fair summary. And I think, you know, we, again, compared to 20 years ago, you know, for example, there are a lot more trials. We are much more organised as a neuroendocrine cancer community, both across healthcare professionals and patients. I think we work together as a a really strong, cohesive whole. Um, And... There's still a lot to do, but I think there's every reason to be positive and optimistic. That's lovely. What a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Stark. I really do appreciate it. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Not Just Any Cancer Series, wherever you listen to your podcast. And please do leave a review.